Good morning. Let me invite you to join with me in your Bibles in John's Gospel, John chapter 6. We'll begin at verse 26 this morning here in just a moment. One of the last things that we just sang together was very striking to me. Uh, You give the healing and grace our hearts always hunger for. When we're asked about what we think will satisfy us, our answer is going to be based on what we think our needs are. That's how we'd gauge an answer to such a question. How well do we understand our life's situation, the state of things, our own needs? How well do we understand those things? Now, we have seen in, in the form of several different individuals in this gospel so far, something that's true of ourselves. And that is that by nature, we greatly misunderstand those things. We don't understand what our needs are. And therefore, we don't know where to look to seek satisfaction. What can you remember, if you think back to uh, what we have seen so far coming up to chapter 6, what do you remember about particular words or ideas that Jesus has brought forward as he interacts with people that have been misunderstood. That may bring your mind back to a number of potential passages because there have been several misunderstandings already, haven't there? He he spoke about a temple in chapter 2 and was misunderstood. He talked to Nicodemus in chapter 3 about life from above, and Nicodemus didn't understand what he was talking about. He spoke about living water and separately about food that he has, all in chapter 4, and the people he spoke to didn't understand. And there are going to be more misunderstandings as well. John's gospel is sort of famous for them. He'll speak about freedom in chapter 8 and not be understood. He'll speak about death in the same chapter. He'll speak about being lifted up in chapter 12. All statements he will make that will be misunderstood by the people listening to him. And what we find is that the misunderstandings are not bad things so much because they create the opportunity for Jesus, usually, or sometimes for John as the narrator, to explain what Jesus is speaking to. He uses these words, speaks of typically physical realities, uh, and the misunderstanding allows clarification that he is speaking about something far deeper than what his hearers uh, are struck with at the first. I bring that up because we're in the midst of another one of those in this passage, in chapter 6. In a way, what we find this morning is that John chapter 6 so far could be seen as one big instance of misunderstanding. It has all been about bread. Bread is a big deal in this chapter, isn't it? And bread continues to be the focus this morning. And even beyond the verses that we're going to see this morning, chapter 6 is all about bread. And just as we should have come to expect by now, there is misunderstanding about what it is he is trying to get across. And so this morning, our Lord begins to clear up this misunderstanding. And it seems like, as we'll walk through this, maybe you'll feel this way too, it seems like what sometimes happens in home repair situations This happens to me often, normally because of something that I have done in the process, but it could happen even on its own. You you, you go in to fix a problem, and as you're fixing the problem, you discover that there are other problems 
that need to be fixed. Uh, and so it goes a little bit longer or deeper than you might have anticipated at the start. The conversation that we'll see here, we'll look at verses 26 to 36, is really made up of three separate confusions, as we will see. And this is how we'll work our way through it. We'll see first in verses 26 to 29, a confusion about work. Second, a quick one, verses 30 to 32, a confusion about Moses that Jesus will need to address. And then finally, in 33 to 36, a confusion about what will be called the bread of God. This is the series of confusions that we're going to hear as we read. So let's hear the text. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Although we're starting this morning in verse 26, we'll read beginning in verse 22. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John 6, beginning in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There was something on the day before this, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there was something to be recognized and understood when our Lord multiplied the loaves over there. And Mark tells us that even the disciples hadn't understood it, much less the, the crowds that we have here. To the crowds who have now come across and have encountered Jesus, there's something of a confusion here. They are seeking Jesus. They've pursued him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They like him. 
They love him. So why is Jesus not responding positively to their advances like they would expect? Why is he running from them? Seemingly sneaking away under cover of darkness to go onto the other side of the sea. The broad misunderstanding that they're operating in had begun the day before. It it was the occasion, in fact, for his refusal to go along with them and his refusal to stay with them. And I would suggest to you that when they ask Jesus here, when did you come here? That we ought to read into that more than just a confusion as to his timing and more than just a question about timing, but also a question about motive. Jesus, you're going out preaching, looking to convince a group of people and to get something done, and you had it all back there with us. When did you come here? Maybe even a why did you come here? Part of what makes me suspect that is that that's the sort of thing that we find in Jesus' reply to them. You notice he doesn't respond at all to a question of the timing or the means by which he crossed over and came here to Capernaum. Instead, what he speaks to has to do with what was insufficient in that setting across the lake. What was it that he found unacceptable there? And it's amid this opening statement, if you will, that he makes uh, that we come across the first point of confusion for the crowd. We'll see it directly in verse 28, but look first at verses 26 and 27 again. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. What was unacceptable was that he had revealed something the day before to them, profound, as to his own person, his identity. He had revealed this to them in this spectacular way, and they were fixated by the bread itself. Now, we could say that, I think, in a way that is unfair to them, given their response. It's not simply the bread that they put in their mouths that they were fixated by. They were fixated by the physical implications of what he had done, rather than the spiritual implications, or maybe better said, rather than the eternal implications of what they had just seen. We know that it went beyond simply bread for them because they immediately went to implications that go beyond the provision of a a physical meal. What did they go beyond to last week when he worked this miracle? They went immediately to political implications. And with that, the, the sorts of problems that the political realm seeks to solve. Politics manages the here and now in a very direct way. But Jesus was not making a point about the here and now as he revealed himself to them. He was revealing to them that in sending his son, God was not meeting one particular temporal need. What God was doing in sending his son is he was bringing life to the dead. 
And when Jesus says here in verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, he's making a distinction between certain kinds of solutions to problems, between solutions that are temporary and unlasting, only solving a problem for a moment, only to have that problem reemerge, comparing that to a solution that when it comes, it endures. Full satisfaction. And with consequences that don't fade away with time. They endure. This is the distinction that he's drawing. Now, they, they display their complete confusion in verse 28. But notice what we have in verse 27 that brings us there. Jesus actually makes a number of statements in verse 27. He says a lot of things. He describes the fact that there is food that perishes and food that endures to eternal life. He speaks of their uh, opting for one or the other by using the word work. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Don't work for this food, but for that food. So he employs the, the image of working to receive this food. He tells them that the enduring food is that which the Son of Man will give to you because the Father has set his seal to Christ. We heard that language of setting your seal back in John 3, 33, if you remember that. For God to set his seal on Christ is a statement of complete and final approval. Christ does represent him. The offers made by the Lord Jesus are trustworthy. And the Father has completely committed himself to the work that Christ is accomplishing. In other words, it's a statement about why we must draw near to Jesus to receive this food. And that's what our Lord is beckoning them to do, isn't it? To draw near to him because this food he's, he's encouraging them toward is that which the Son of Man will give to you. It must come from him. All of that in verse 27. There's a lot of ideas there, a lot of words. And it's as if the Jews had to pick a word out of that to really hear and to fixate on. And so they choose their favorite word. The word they come out of all of that with is the word work. Work. Verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is what they came out of his statement in verse 27 with. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Oh, work. We're willing to do that. We're able to do that. We're all ears. Just tell us what work, what works God requires, and we'll do them. We've seen such a fixation already in this gospel. And regarding that response of theirs to our Lord, I wanted to share with you something that D.A. Carson wrote at this point. He said, from John's perspective, their naivete is formidable. They display no doubt about their intrinsic ability to meet any challenge God may set them. They evince no sensitivity to the fact that eternal life is first and foremost a gift within the purview of the Son of Man. This is what we see coming out of them as they respond to Jesus. 
It's interesting the way that he addressed them here. On other occasions, Jesus gets such a question. What works must we do to be doing the works of God? He's asked that in different forms at different times. And he responds differently than he does here. Uh, Maybe he's in a different mood when the rich young ruler asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus quickly puts his finger right into the eye of that man's idol and says, one thing you lack, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Remember when he replied that way to that question? And that man went away very sorrowful. He knows exactly what needs to be heard, what needs to be said. He has also just walked three quarters of the way across the Sea of Galilee the night before. Maybe he's a bit tired and in more of a direct mood on this day. But this time he answers this question quite directly. I mean, he is so, in this entire interchange, he is so incredibly direct with this confrontation. Look at how he answers in verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. You may notice that he took their plural works and gave them the singular work. Believe. Believe in the one whom he has sent. Now, he, it's important for us to recognize in light of how he has put this. He says it this way because he's responding to their question, isn't he, about works that they need to do. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He is not seeking to make some sort of a philosophical definition or statement about the nature of saving faith. Faith is not a work in the sense of it being something meritorious that I do to earn payment. The New Testament is abundantly clear about that, isn't it? Romans 4 makes that point explicitly. Ephesians 2 tells us that saving faith is a gift from God. But nonetheless, he's emphasizing something real. And that is that in space and time, the exercise of that faith is a placing of my trust onto Christ. It's an act of my will. There is a time in my life before I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and there is a time after that point. It takes place. And as John 3.18 has already told us, the one who places their trust in Christ will not be judged, but the one who does not place their trust in Christ, he says, has been judged already. It must be this way. My trust must have Jesus Christ as its object. This is what God requires. And so it's unambiguously how he replies to them as they ask him this question. And surprisingly, after he replies, they display some level of understanding about what he has said. Some level. Verse 30, we read this. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Do you hear the sliver of understanding there? They get, for example, that he's referring to himself when he says, this is the work of God, that you believe the one whom he has sent. They understand that he's talking about himself. 
What sign do you show us that we may believe you? So it's nice to see some understanding at some level. But then we go back and read what they actually say to him here. And my goodness. Do you remember who this group is that's having this conversation with him? This is the group that was with him the day before on the east side of the lake. When he took the food and fed 5,000. And so clear and obvious was this demonstration. You remember? They were ready right then to start the rebellion against the great and mighty Roman Empire, to declare him king and say, let's do this. So impactful was the moment. They were ready for that. Today, they hear him reply like this, and they ask him for a sign that they might see and believe. An early 20th century commentator named C.H. McGregor put it well, I think, when he said, Christ could produce no credential so conclusive, but that the Jews would demand one more conclusive still. It's clear in what they have experienced and what they say here, it's well for us to understand how true that is of us as well. This is not a Jewish first century problem. This is a human problem. We have to come to grips with the fact that there is, in our unbelief, apart from the Lord working to open our eyes, there is no sign that he could show us, manifest before us, that would result in us trusting him and moving forward toward him in a saving way. Because what we've seen already in this account, in this gospel, is that that's the nature of false belief. It's a kind of belief, but a belief that will only go as far as the eye can see. It will never take him at his word. And so apart from the grace of God, so go we. Now they ask him for this sign. This moves us into the second confusion of the passage, a confusion about Moses. This one will be a bit quicker. Uh, It's it's good to note that they don't ask for uh, any old sign in general. They have in mind what they want to see. They describe it in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They want to see the miracle of constant daily bread from heaven repeated. This is what they want. Now, we do have some explanation as to why they would ask for this in particular. It's because of teaching that the Jews had been passing down by now related to Moses. They had come to expect that just like the great prophet Moses gave them manna from heaven, they had come to expect that when the Redeemer came, the Redeemer would do the same thing again. So there's something called a a midrash. Midrash are the Jewish commentaries on their Old Testament, just like we have commentaries today. In their commentary on Exodus 16, which, of course, we still have, it reads this way, quote, As the former Redeemer, that's Moses, caused manna to descend... As it is stated, behold, I will cause to rain bread from heaven for you. So will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend. As it is stated, may he be as a rich cornfield in the land. We have a Jewish work written shortly after Jesus' time, but that no doubt reflects an already established pattern of thought among them. The book of 2 Baruch, chapter 29, verse 8 
says this, It shall come to pass that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years. This is what they're looking forward to. God's word has not told them that this is what will happen, but this is the idea that they have come to expect. So that in the name of the sign that they think they ought to expect, and that's the sign that they've decided that they can demand, in the name of that sign, they ignore the sign already given. And in fact, by now, the signs, plural. But furthermore, what their statement here reveals in the way that they recall the episode of the manna in the book of Exodus, what it reveals is a misunderstanding about that event, about what happened in the wilderness. They have come to credit Moses for the bread that they received. That's one problem. Another problem is they failed to perceive the foreshadowing nature of the manna itself. And we can hear both of those problems in the correction that he gives in verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And here you see the first correction. It's quite obvious. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father. The giver of the bread was not Moses. When God moves to provide for his people, It's coming from him. These are gifts that he chooses to give. God is the one who gives bread to his people. In any event, though, what was it that was given by Moses? Maybe you notice in the way that Jesus finishes his sentence, he changes something here. First, he says that it was bread from heaven. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But then do you see, he compares that to another thing. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. We'd expect him to say, but my father who gave you the bread from heaven. And that is the point that he's making, but he makes a second point along with it in the way he finishes. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. The manna in the wilderness was bread that came from the sky, came from heaven. But that stuff was not the bread that they were to be expecting when God comes for the redemption of his people. It was bread. It was not the true bread. This leads into the third confusion that we see here in verses 33 to 36. No sooner does he correct their conception about Moses than he turns to this bread that came in Moses' time. We'd expect him to do that because he's been setting this up for 24 hours now. He worked to multiply the loaves in preparation for this message that he was about to bring about who he himself is. He's never done any of his mighty deeds just for their own sake. He does them to instruct, to reveal who he is. There at the end of verse 32, what he is implying is that there is bread of another sort for the Father to give. And it's what he calls true bread. Now again, that doesn't mean that the manna was somehow false bread, does it? What it means is that the significance of that bread was not 
in and of itself. It did not point to itself and then terminate. The significance of that bread was to point to another bread. But there is a true bread that God gives that when he gives it, it's not pointing ahead to any other bread. It's not pointing ahead to anything at all. It is the thing. This is where all of the meaning has been all along. This is where the significance has been. The point that God has been making terminates here. And that's the true bread. He defines it in verse 33. What is this true bread from heaven that God gives? He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You will know when the bread of God has come, he says. Because when it comes, it will bring life. And I mean life in a Gospel of John kind of sense. Let's not forget the context we're hearing this in. True life. What I mean is, when one eats of that bread, one will not die. That kind of life. Jesus will say later in this gospel, the one who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Remember verse 27 that we just saw. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. That is not what they are waiting for. That's not a category in their minds, as they think expectantly of the Redeemer that their God will send to redeem them from their troubles. We said at the beginning, what you, what you will be satisfied with depends on your understanding of what you think your needs are. And they are not thinking in these terms. In fact, the very statement here in verse 33 doesn't clear it up for them either, does it? They still think he's talking about actual bread. Verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. The manna came day after day for a long time. Oh, Jesus, give this bread always. Now, we should be fair to them. The fact that he was talking about a person here and not about bread bread isn't actually as obvious, wouldn't have been as obvious to them as our verse 33 would make it seem. Because in the way that this is written, it doesn't actually use a personal pronoun he here. What it does is it, it uses a, a particular article. So it says literally something like, the bread of God is what comes down from heaven, or that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, Jesus is clearly talking about himself, and he's about to say so. So it's proper to translate this, he who comes down from heaven. But they don't get it. They take him to be referring to the manna-like bread. And all of this confusion and all of this interchange brings us at last to verse 35. And I hope that having come all the way through the passage here, it's much easier for us to appreciate how painstakingly literal and clear he becomes at this point. He does not drop the metaphor of bread, but he is, he is uh, in Sunday school, kindergarten was mentioned a couple of times. He, he is very straightforward, very specific here. As we read verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread. 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, the most important question here is the one that we will not take up this morning, but rather that we'll try to consider carefully with the passage next week. It's the question, okay, set the metaphor aside then now. How exactly is it that Christ will be this for those who come to him? Walk me through this. For this morning, for the rest of our time here, our goal, in essence, is to lean into the metaphor a little bit more, to focus on it. Why does Christ call himself bread here? I am the living bread. Or the better question, given the connection that we have seen, goes all the way back into Exodus. Why has God chosen to picture the provision he's going to make for sinners in his son? Why has he chosen to picture that with the picture of bread? He could have picked something else. Could have done other miracles in the Old Testament to prepare us for a different image. This is what he has done as he has prepared and taught his people. Why? Why is it appropriate? And as we move toward closing this morning, let's answer that question. There are a number of answers to that question. There are a number of truths that the comparison gives to us, which is the case for any good comparison or illustration or metaphor. And our God is quite good at metaphor. This is a question that J.C. Ryle answered well back in the late 1800s. Listen to the list he gives here. Ryle said this, The reasons why Christ calls himself bread appear to be such as these. He is intended to be to the soul what bread is to the body. It's food. Bread is necessary food. When men can afford nothing Uh, To eat nothing else, they eat bread. It is food that all need. The king and the pauper both eat bread. It is food that suits all. Old and young, weak and strong, all like bread. It is the most nourishing kind of food. Nothing does so much good and is so indispensable to bodily health as bread. He wrote before the rise of gluten allergies, I suppose. It is food that we need daily and are never tired of. Morning and night we go on all our lives eating bread. And he says this, he says the application of these various points to Christ is too plain to need any explanation. He is given to be the great supply of all the wants of men's souls, whatever our spiritual necessity may be. However starving, famished, weak, and desperate our condition, there is enough in Christ and to spare. And we have seen that picture of abundance made very intentionally in the works of our Lord in this gospel, haven't we? Great abundance. This the Lord accomplishes in his, as he stands before them and says, I am the bread of life. But there's something else I would suggest as well that we could add to that list. Another, I think, very significant reality. 
that we get in this picture of Christ as bread. It's interesting, in verse 27, we've seen, he tells them to prioritize the food. He says, the food which the Son of Man will give to them. But now he comes and says, I am the bread. What is it that he will give? He gives himself. That's what he gives. See, this tells us that we we come to Christ because of who he is, not because of what he can give us. We come to him because of who he is. What is most important in our lives? What is life? We're hearing Jesus Christ make unambiguous claims that the answers to those questions is him. What works shall you do? This work. Believe in me. Believe in me. Look to me. Rest in me utterly. We hear his condemnation in verse 36, and we tremble. He ends this section by saying to them, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. We're reminded yet again here of this picture of sight. Sight is not spoken of positively in this gospel. They believe with a belief that extends no farther than what their own eyes can see. They will never take him at his word or on his own authority. And so they do not believe him at all. How can we find favor in God's sight? We who know ourselves enough to sense the great need for an answer to that question. How can we find forgiveness for our failures and sins that haunt us and that plague our conscience? Jesus says, take and eat. Believe me when I say that I am enough. I am more than enough. I am all that you need. Rest on me. And what the Father has sent me to do and to be on your behalf. See, the Christian will never say at the end of his or her life, I hope I've done enough. The Christian will never say that. The Christian says, oh, thank you, God, for my Lord Jesus. Praise Jesus, who did enough. The Christian prays for the grace to follow the example of our faithful fathers and mothers in the faith that came before us. We pray for the grace to follow the example of people like J. Gresham Machen, who as he lay dying, dictated his last words in a telegram to his friend. And these were his last words. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Thanks be to God that Jesus did enough and that he gives himself to us as our bread and says to us this morning, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Would you pray with me? Father, you are the giver of life, which is to say you are the lover of our souls 
who has given us his only begotten son. We thank you for that gracious gift. A gift that enlivens your people, nourishes our souls, washes us, shepherds us, trains us, secures us safely in his hands so that nothing and no one could ever snatch us away. And now we ask you, Father, in obedience to your word, we ask you to help us today work in us so that we too might not work for food that perishes. We know you call us to faithfulness and diligence in this life, to meet our obligations in this life, and we pray for strength to do that. But, oh Lord, keep us your people. Keep us from idols. We ask this in the name of the bread of life, our great God and King, your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.